All right, well, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. Uh, My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and we are continuing our sermon series called Unshaken. Uh, We're looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and flip over there. Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a a Bible, grab one off the chair in front of you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 982. While you're flipping over there, I want to remind you, we do have a Newcomer's Cafe today. This is a great opportunity to get a free lunch and to uh, meet some people and to have some questions answered. Uh, We are going to be meeting right up there in the balcony at 1230. Feel free to return. Um, I'll be up there and and basically just give you you a brief history of the church, a little bit about the vision of who we are and why we exist, and, and I'll be happy to answer any questions you have. Uh, about it. And uh, it'll be non-threatening, and we guarantee not to try to sell you a timeshare. So come out at, at 1230, and um, we would love to have you join us right up there in the balcony. All right, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The Word of the Lord. All right, we're going to be looking this morning at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So I want to start us out this morning with um, a little history lesson. It's a guy named John Locke who uh, was a 17th century English philosopher and physician. Many of you had to learn about him uh, in your history class, uh, probably familiar with his name. He was hugely influential, and he wrote that governments exist for a simple purpose, to protect an individual's right to life, liberty, and property. That was the purpose of of governments. They are constituted to protect an individual's right to life, liberty, and property. Now, that might sound a little bit familiar, because in 1776, Thomas Jefferson borrowed that phrase, but with a slight tweak. He wrote the most famous American uh, document, the Declaration of Independence, and the opening line is arguably the most famous line in that most famous document. It says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, that's a little little tweak, right? He, he took Locke's idea, and, and instead of talking about a right to property, He tweaked it, and instead talked about a right to the pursuit of happiness. But that little tweak was very important. Uh, It really, in a sense, gave birth to what we call the American dream. 
and, and our obsession with the pursuit of happiness. It wasn't that people didn't want to be happy before this, but, but the words that he spoke, the words that he wrote, I believe, were, were written prophetically over our nation. Because I'm not sure there's ever been a people that has felt more entitled to a life of happiness than Americans. Every generation of Americans feels entitled to a life of greater happiness than the generation that came before. It is a national obsession. And I don't think I need to tell you that while we are obsessed with the pursuit of happiness, happiness itself continues to be rather elusive in our culture. Arthur Brooks wrote an article for the New York Times entitled, A Formula for Happiness. And he said this, Happiness has traditionally been considered an elusive and evanescent thing. To some, even trying to achieve it is an exercise in futility. It has been said that happiness is as a butterfly, which when pursued is always beyond our grasp, but which, if you will sit down quietly, might alight upon you. I think there's real truth here. And that truth is discovered by most of us fairly early on, and that is that happiness is elusive. And that it quickly leaves if it arrives. I was looking at an old journal that I wrote when I was in high school. I mean, I was just a young punk. Um, And and at 16, 17 years old, whenever it was that I wrote it, um, I was already jaded. I wrote in there, I'm not sure happiness even exists. Maybe all the best you can hope for is the pursuit of happiness. And I think, honestly, most of us have kind of come to that conclusion. So what are we supposed to do with a command like this? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It is universal in scope and in time. In all situations, at all times. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It doesn't say sit down quietly and maybe joy will settle on you like a butterfly, but it won't stay long. It says rejoice in the Lord always. As we've seen before, God doesn't command us to do anything that he doesn't also equip us to do. So that means we have an incredible promise in front of us, an incredible invitation to a very different kind of life than I think most of us are used to living. But if we're going to walk in this joy, we need to learn to align our hearts with the one who gives that joy. So let's dig in a bit here and and see what we can learn. First of all, I want you to think about this, because this kind of grabbed me. God commands us to be joyful. Like, He commands us to be joyful. That tells us something profound about ourselves. If God commands us to rejoice always, it must be because we were designed to actually rejoice always. We were designed for unending joy. 
And, and, and I think that's actually reflected in our own heart's desires. Humans have an insatiable desire for joy. And, and great thinkers, Christian, non-Christian, this is great thinkers have been intrigued by this because this is a, a universal human condition, this, this insatiable desire and drive for joy. When you look at it, we alone of all the creatures who walk the earth or swim the earth or fly the earth spend our lives chasing joy. It tells us something very deep about the human condition and about the human heart. It tells us that human life is not simply about the survival of the fittest. It is not just about the struggle to overcome and survive. Humans have struggled not just to make a living, but to make a life worth living. And that's because human life, at its core, finds its meaning in joy. Because we were created for joy. Like a fish swims in the water or a bird flies in the air, we were created to exist in joy. But the joy we desire and intuitively know it exists, even though it is elusive in our daily experience, seems like a butterfly. It seems elusive and fragile, but we know it's real. And when it's not here, I ache in its absence. And when it is, I long to experience it more deeply. But it does pass. And that has led some people to conclude that the pursuit of happiness is, in fact, a fool's appetite. And as a result, they give themselves over quietly to despair in the name of simply being realistic. It is easier not to hope than to hope and be disappointed. But this verse places in front of us a challenge to our cynicism. This verse tells us that the solution isn't to become cynical in an attempt to guard our heart against the very appetites of our heart. C.S. Lewis in his classic Mere Christianity said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So if I find in myself an insatiable desire to experience joy... I must have been made for a world of limitless joy. See, it tells me something about me, but it also tells me something about God. If God commands us to rejoice without ceasing, it must be because He loves joy. And if we're honest, that doesn't really fit our picture of God a lot of the time. I think we often picture God as the enemy of joy. Right? He's just hanging around waiting to catch us doing something wrong, to punish us for actually trying to be happy. Right? We think of like cattle in a field, right? We picture ourselves in this field of limited resources. And right over there, right on the other side of the fence, is limitless joy and happiness. But God built a fence. And not only that, he's paying attention to it to punish anybody who might try to climb over, 
to reach through the cracks, to grab just a little bit of the happiness that eludes us in our daily experience. Everything we want, everything that will make us happy seems to be right over there, just out of reach. You guys, that's often how we picture God. We picture God as the great cosmic killjoy. He, he just exists to taunt us with what we can't have, to create desires and then make rules where those desires can't be fulfilled. He wants us walking around looking like we've been baptized in lemon juice, sour and unhappy. You guys, listen. If God commands us to rejoice unceasingly, it's because He loves joy. It must be that He not only loves joy, but that He is joy. Because God doesn't command us anything that's disconnected from His character. It is His essence. It isn't just what He feels. It's part of what He is. I mean, let me ask you, do you, on a regular basis, picture God as a joyful God? What's your mental image of God? When you approach God in prayer, when you approach God in the Word, when, when you approach God when you've done something wrong, when you approach God when something's gone right, do you picture God as a God of joy? A laughing God? A delighting God? A playful God? Or do you picture Him as a disconnected and slightly disapproving parental figure, always waiting for you to prove yourself, always waiting for you to do just a little better? Zephaniah 3.17 is one of my favorite descriptions of God, and it describes God at the moment that He is, in a, it is united with the people He's redeemed. It's describing that moment, which is still, in a sense, future. It's present in, in the sense that, that it is real, but it is future in the sense that the event itself, we're going to experience this. It's prophetic. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is that how you picture God? He will rejoice over you with gladness. It's like a father when he gets home after a long day and his little princess runs out the front door. Daddy, daddy, daddy. He rejoices over us. When a mother sees her child and that child yearns for her and the joy that rises up in her heart. When we see someone we love, a friend, an acquaintance, a sibling, a, a whatever, and, 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 and our hearts simply rise up in joy because of the warmth of their face and the warmth of their presence, you know the feeling. And you know that feeling because God created it. Because God experiences it. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in love. Love that image. 
It's like he comes in with the glad exuberance of a fresh uh, a greeting and comes in and just holds you in the quietness of the moment. It's not just a, a dancing, exuberant, hyper-active uh, love. It is, it is a calm and present joy that doesn't stay calm and present. He will exult over you with loud singing. The word exult means to boast or delight. Some translations actually say dance. He will dance over you with loud singing. The joy will overflow. That's a description of a joyful God. Not a distant, cold, killjoy God. We were created by a joyful God for joy. Because God created us for Himself. He created us with an insatiable thirst for joy. Because He is an eternal fountain of delight. It's who He is. It's what He is. Now I want you to notice our verse carefully. Because it doesn't just say rejoice always. It says rejoice what? Let's try it again. It says rejoice what? In the Lord. It's an important little phrase. Rejoice in the Lord always. You guys, God is infinitely delightful. And He wants us to feast on that delight. But unlike a feast here, the more you eat, the more you enjoy. I mean, when you have a feast here, think about it. What's the most enjoyable part of the feast? It's the first couple of bites. It is when your appetite is, is the strongest and your senses are most present. The longer you eat, the duller you become. The more you drink, the less you taste. But when we feast on the presence of God, when we feast on our delightful Creator, the more we eat, the clearer our minds become and the more present our senses are. You don't get drunk on this kind of joy. You don't lose your discernment. The more you drink of this kind of joy, the more clarity you get. When we delight in God, our minds are cleared and our hearts are freed. What are the things that give you joy? And I don't mean that in an accusatory sense, like what outside of God? I'm saying what things actually give you joy, right? For some of you, it might be a perfect pairing of wine and cheese, some of you are like, dude, I am not a wine and cheese kind of a guy. All right, for you, maybe it is a perfect pairing of a beer and a brat. Okay? <laughs> maybe it is. But let me ask you something. Who created your taste buds? God. Who created that pleasure and then gave you the ability to appreciate it? God. Maybe for you, it's the joy of completing a task. That's, that's what really gives you joy, a, a work of art that is finally realized or a project around the house or, or something done at work where you have to labor diligently and it is finally produced and when it is done, that sense of accomplishment and productivity gives you joy. Who gave you the drive for productivity? Who gave you the ability to both create and accomplish? God. Maybe for you it's relational, it's when uh, friends are nearby or family is safe, when you know that all of the ones in your little nest are safe and happy. 
then you feel joy. Who created your ability to relate with others? Who created not only the the venue of relationships, but gave you the capacity for relationships? God. Because all of these things reflect aspects of God. All of these things flow from, from His character. And as we enjoy the gifts of God, we learn more about the God who gives the good gifts. As we take joy in what He has created, we discover more of the joy of the Creator. These things do not necessarily have to compete with our joy in God. God created them. And they didn't just flow from His mind, they flew from His heart. We experience these things because they originated in the heart and the experience of God. And we long for these things because we were created in the image of God to experience the presence of God and the good gifts that He's given. To delight in Him even as we delight in the things that He's given. Because those things point us to the giver of the gifts. See, the problem isn't the gifts. The problem is when we try to take the gifts and make them replace the giver of the gifts. The problem is when we try to feed our appetites on the things that He's given instead of the one who gave them. When we try to take an infinite need for joy and feed them with temporal, passing pleasures. We long for these things because we were created in the image of God to delight with Him in the perfection of His character. So how do we get there? How do we experience this joy? I want to give you two principles. The first is this. If you want joy, you can't make your goal to have joy. If you want joy, you can't make it your goal to have joy. See, there's a problem with the pursuit of happiness. As soon as we make happiness the goal, we actually block ourselves from achieving the very thing we want. When we make joy our goal, we make joy about us. And joy doesn't work like that. Joy isn't a prize to be captured or a creature to be put in a gilded cage as if it could live isolated and could survive away from its source. Joy. Joy is the response of my heart to a relationship and it can't survive apart from that relationship. Joy is the response of my heart to a relationship, and it can't survive apart from its connection to that relationship. You can't take joy and make it an end in and of itself, or you destroy the very thing that ultimately enables you to experience it. That means joy can't be my goal. The relationship needs to be my goal. Think about it in human terms, you guys. Someone who marries because they are determined to have joy in their marriage is setting themselves up and their marriage up for failure. Think about it. Somebody who marries because their goal is to experience joy in marriage is setting themselves up and their marriage up for failure. It will destroy their marriage because they will treat the person they're married to as a means to an end. Their goal is their joy. 
The person they're married to becomes a means to an end. My joy. My joy is my goal and you're my way to get there. And it doesn't take long before somebody senses that and resents that. It's not long before somebody fails us in being the deliverer of the joy we pursue. And we begin to resent them and blame them for our lack of joy. You know when we're joyful in our marriages? When joy is the last thing we're thinking about. That's when we're joyful in our marriages. You want to know when we're joyful in our friendships? When joy isn't the goal of the friendship. When we're with somebody and joy is the goal, we're constantly asking the question, how do you get me what I want? How will you deliver me into the experience I crave? How will you be the means to my end? And as long as they're entertaining enough and engaging enough and interesting enough, as long as they feed your ego enough, as long as they, they, they give you what you want enough, you'll value them. You'll be with them. It'll look like a good relationship. But it won't be. Because as soon as they stop being the means to your end, as soon as they become actually human and have flaws and make mistakes and hurt you and have selfish impulses and, and, and actually have needs they want you to meet, our joy gets derailed. When joy isn't our goal, when loving well is our goal, our relationship will flourish. You get what I'm saying? You can't have joy if joy is your goal. Joy is the byproduct of of having a relationship, and a relationship is the result of putting somebody else above you. Their needs, their desires, their wants. You learn to take joy in their joy. You, you, turn to, you, you, you learn to have happiness in their thriving, even if it comes at your expense. Ironically, that's when you experience joy. And that's when relationships thrive. And this is true in the church as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community wherever they go. See, some of you don't have any joy in your relationships at church. And you blame the church. Some of you are like, man, this community thing is just not working out for me. People aren't meeting my needs. People aren't checking on me. People aren't paying attention to me. People aren't, aren't feeding my need to feel important. People aren't feeding my need to, be, to feel interesting. Pe- people aren't, aren't making me the center of their worlds. This whole community thing in church has got to be a sham. If you guys would just be better community to me, then I'd be happy. You guys, that's using people as a means to an end. We have legitimate needs for community. We want to be cared for. We want to be known. We want to be loved. 
And we come into a community of faith, not just to share our faith, but to share the joy of our faith. To move into a, a world, a, 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 an ecosystem, a, a, a way of doing life in which we are known and can know and, and, and are loved and can love. But if joy is your goal, you will use the people around you as a means to an end. And when they fail you, you will cast blame on an entire system, the community of church, because it didn't deliver you into your goal. But as you are using the people around you as a means to an end, you are, in fact, destroying your ability to get to the very end you want. Joy can't be your goal. I mean, listen, this is the best advice I can give you. Stop focusing on how people aren't meeting your needs. Stop focusing on how people aren't doing what you want them to do, how people aren't living up to your expectations. It's completely the wrong focus. Focus on how you're loving well. Focus on on how you're meeting the needs of others. Focus on how you are investing in relationships and serving others. How you are taking the humble place where you're allowing people to not meet your needs, but you meet theirs. Where you become a little bit more like Jesus, who said that he was the servant and not the king. You guys, this is the the unintuitive nature of the kingdom of God. You will experience more joy when joy isn't your goal. You will experience more joy when you invest in relationships instead of demand relationships. You will experience more community when you learn to love well instead of demanding that others love you well. You will experience better marriages. You will experience better friendships. You will experience more joy because your relationships will be healthier. And joy is the byproduct of relationships. You need to love others. You need to build the community you crave by pursuing relationships. You need to love others the way you want to be loved. This is true with people, and this is true with God. Joy can't be the goal of your relationship with God. If it is, you're going to make God a means to an end. You're going to start placing demands on God, expectations on God, making bargains with God. You ever find yourself doing that? Kind of subtly, sometimes not so subtly. If I do this and this and this, I expect you to do this and this and this. Sometimes it's more subtle, like, like Lord, I'm putting in my quiet time. I, I, I'm putting in my prayer time. I'm going to church. Why aren't you meeting my needs? As if it were a bargain. And if you push the right buttons, you'll get the right results. Here's the thing, you guys. We can't make joy our goal in our relationship with God. We need to make our relationship with God our, jo- our goal, and joy will result. That's why it says, rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't say rejoice in the gifts that the Lord gives you. 
I mean, some of you really do think that, that something external is going to ultimately give you joy. God, if you will just give me this relationship. God, if you will just give me this degree. If you'll just give me this job. If you'll just give me this home. If you'll just give me this security. You keep asking him for more gifts as if the gifts could deliver you into the joy you crave. The joy doesn't come from the gifts. It comes from the God who gives the gifts. And if you're not pursuing a deeper relationship with God, it doesn't matter how many gifts you get. You're going to miss the joy. Do you realize that you can have a life of perfect security, perfect abundance, and not have joy? Because joy is the byproduct of relationship. So when we read our Bible, when we pray, when we go to spend time with believers, there are right ways and wrong ways to do this. Some people do their quiet time like this little box they check off. Like, okay, I had my quiet time today. I can feel better about myself. Okay, I had my little prayer time. Okay, that was good. All right, I was at church. Man, I am a three-star Christian right now. And we really think we expect, we deserve something from God as, as a result of this. You guys, I mean, think about how ludicrous this is. It would be like you coming down to breakfast with your spouse and sitting across from them and never looking at them, never seeing them. Never moving into intimacy with them, but you're there. You put in your time. You checked off the box. Man, why isn't there joy in my relationship? Because joy is the byproduct of relationship. If you make joy the goal, you miss the goal. Rejoice in the Lord, not the gifts that the Lord gives. Joy doesn't come from God giving you everything you want. It comes from Him giving you Himself. And the God of the universe, the source of infinite joy, has in Christ given you Himself. The greatest gift that can ever be given. He's the archetype of all gifts. He is the original stuff of all the other great experiences of life. Whatever great experience you can think of, whether it is eating a great meal or, or having sex or, or, or seeing a beautiful sunrise or having an incredible adventure or accomplishing something great, all of those great experiences find their origin in the person, in the nature, and in the character of God. And God has given you Himself. God has drawn near to us in Christ. Humbling Himself that we might be exalted. Taking our sin so that we could be covered with His dignity. Taking the penalty of our cosmic treason so that we could be covered with the perfect record of His Son. He has drawn near to us in Christ so that we can draw near to Him in relationship so that we can delight in our delightful God. You can have every gift he gives, but if you aren't experiencing the nearness of relationship, you won't have joy. You'll have distraction and pleasure and entertainment, which is what most of you are settling for. If I can just have a momentary distraction, if I can just have a momentary pleasure, if I can just have enough entertainment to kind of quietly distract me from, from the quiet despair of my life. And we're offered so much more.
So first, if you want joy, you can't make joy your goal. You need to make relationships your goal. And most importantly, your relationship with God. The second thing is this. If you want to have joy, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to fight for it. And it's going to have to be a fight of faith. Joy is the natural byproduct of relationship. But we live in a broken world. A world that has been marred by sin and rebellion and hurt. You guys, if joy is the byproduct of relationship, what happens when that relationship gets hard? What happens when um, the person we love feels far away and distant from us? This happens in human relationships all the time, whether it's a spouse or a best friend. We go through seasons where, where we're in the same space and we desperately want to connect, but there's a distance and there's a gap between us. You know what I'm talking about. And that gap and that distance at times is, is the source of, of our most acute pain. Because we know that on the other side of it is, our, is, is the joy we long for, the relationship, the love, the experiencing of knowing and being known. How do we have joy when we experience that? Well, here's the thing. If your goal is joy, you're just going to resent them for pulling away. You're going to, to start putting all of your anger and your blame on them because they're not giving you what you need. You're going to resent them. They'll become an obstacle to your true goal. And you'll either pull away or you'll attack. You're going to pull away in self-protection. Well, if there's a gap, then I'll just build a wall because that gap is painful. That gap actually makes me feel a little ashamed. I'm wondering why you don't love me. I'm wondering why you don't treasure me right now. I'm wondering what about me is so alienating that you don't want to be near me. You don't want to draw near to me. So I build a wall and I I pull away. Or I go on the offensive and I attack them for their perceived attack. I attack them because their distance feels like rejection. Neither one of those helps solve the problem. <laughs> Neither one of those help bridge the gap. Neither gets us closer to joy. So if it's a friend or a spouse, what do we have to do in those situations? What do we have to do when, when, when we're looking across the table at them and we desperately want to have a human, real, intimate connection with them and it feels so distant? What do we have to do? We have to fight for intimacy. We have to fight for humility. We have to fight to stay present even though it's uncomfortable. We have to be honest in our feelings and, and honest in our, in our shame and honest in our sadness and honest in our loneliness and invite them back in to identify with us in those places of pain. Because the deepest forms of intimacy often grow out of shared places of pain where we see the weakness and the need of another And we step out of ourselves to care for them and to love them and to see them and to dignify them. That's what we have to do in our marriages. That's what we have to do in our friendships. If we don't do that, we will simply move from relationship to relationship to relationship, continually blaming the other because it's always their fault. 
That's what we have to do in our relationships with others, and that is what we have to do in our relationship with God. What do we do when God feels far away? What happens when you look around at life and all you can see is His absence? All you can see are the things you want Him to fix. All right, can I be real with you guys? Because I'm going to be. I was dreading this sermon this week. I was dreading this sermon. I didn't want to preach this text. Not this week. I sat in this verse all week. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And it felt a million miles away. It felt more like an impossible command than a warm invitation this week. I texted my friends on Friday. I got a group of pastor friends. We text each other on a regular basis. We pray for each other. We encourage each other. I texted them a prayer request. And uh, in all the encouragements that I received back, one of them was, you realize you're going to have to share this text with your people, right? I'm like, all right. This is what I said. This was just me being honest and asking. I said, I have to preach on rejoicing continually in God. But I can't get the 100 kids who died in Aleppo this weekend out of my head. Or the 75,000 children who will likely die in Nigeria this year. Or the way Christians are so angry and defensive and fragile in our culture right now that we can't even have real conversations. The fact that we are more concerned about our comfort than we are with other people's pain. I feel like yelling and weeping, not rejoicing. That's what I texted on Friday when I sat down to write this sermon with a few minor edits. So this week, you guys, I felt God's absence. This week, I looked around, and what I saw were all the things that were broken that He needed to fix. And it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. This week, my vision was filled with the brokenness of this world because there is so much dysfunction and so much evil and so much suffering. Sometimes it feels like we are in a small skiff floating on a sea of sadness. And we're doing our best just not to capsize. What do we do when we feel so small? And God feels so far away. Do we get angry at God? Do we pull away from God and self-protect? Or do we attack God for His lack of nearness? Do we simply give over to despair? And cynically close our hearts? Those are all the things I was tempted to do. Those are all the things that, honestly, I struggled with. Those are the things that that I would give myself over to and that I would come back and have to fight my way out of. When I say we need to fight for joy, I mean we need to fight for joy. And fights are ugly. And, And fights are progressive and fights are difficult. We're going to have to fight for joy. 
and we have to fight in faith. It means that we need to dig our heels in to the truth of who God is and what He's done. We need to remind ourselves that God is not absent and He isn't done. You guys, consider Jesus. I was thinking about this verse in Hebrews. I mean, Jesus knew something about joy, right? <laughs> Jesus, God incarnate. He, he knew something about joy, right? He, he existed in eternal, unending joy, right? The, the Trinity, three who's and one what. I mean, just the craziest theological thing ever, right? But, but what it tells us is that God exists in eternal community, knowing and being known, loving and being loved, having joy in relationship as the byproduct of simply giving and giving and receiving and receiving. He knew joy. But he didn't consider his experience of joy something to be selfishly held on to. He instead humbled himself and became a servant. He became one of us and he walked in this broken world and and, and he became the embodiment of the brokenness. He didn't just see it from a distance. He entered into it. When Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are not joyful words. The author of joy, the true expression of joy, entered into the brokenness and the pain in ways we can't understand. And yet the author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. How did Jesus deal with the brokenness of this world? How did Jesus deal with it when his father felt a million miles away? When he was in the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane weeping, praying so intensely that the blood vessels in his forehead were bursting and the blood was mixing with the sweat for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. So he knew something about joy and he knew something about suffering and he knew something about faith. He could see through the suffering to the blessing on the other side. He could see through the distance to the reunion that was inevitable because God had promised it. He dug his heels into the truth in faith. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't deny the reality of pain. He didn't pretend it didn't exist. He didn't ignore the suffering of the world or run away from it. He didn't pretend that the world was better than it was. He not only saw it, he took it in and became the embodiment of it because he had set his face in faith to trust his Father. I don't think this is an exceptional experience follower of Christ. You need to expect this fight. If your Savior had to pass through suffering to reach joy, you need to expect the same thing. You don't get a free pass from the brokenness of this world just because you are a follower of Christ. There's one path to resurrection and it is through death. And in this world, in this broken, broken world, the effects of death are around us every day. 
the evil, the betrayals, the deceptions, the the self-serving, the senseless murders, the, the bombing of children. We can either hide our faces and pretend it doesn't exist. We can try to convince ourselves that, that, that all of this is just an illusion as long as we can protect our little domain and stop looking outside into the cold, cruel world. We can try to be... Or we can dig our heels in in faith. Paul, when he wrote this letter, was in jail. This is one of the prison epistles. He was under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial. That's when he wrote to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord again, I say, rejoice. He knew something about suffering. In fact, when he planted the church in Philippi, he and Silas were beaten and arrested. In Acts chapter 17, you read about it. They got arrested, and what did they do in the middle of the night? They were singing psalms to God. And we're like, holy cow, he must have been superhuman to experience joy in that moment. Is it possible, just possible, that he wasn't experiencing joy but fighting for it? Is it possible that after having been beaten and betrayed and and put in prison in fear of his life, that he was in that moment digging his heels into the truth of the character of God to fight for joy by digging deep in his faith? See, I don't think Paul was overflowing in that moment with the the joy of that circumstance. I think he was fighting for joy in the midst of suffering. Sometimes we sing, not because we're full of joy, but because we're full of pain. And we need to fight in that pain to draw near to God, the God who's drawn near to us. You guys, when this world is overwhelming, we need to narrow our focus and remind ourselves of who God is, his character and his actions on our behalf. We need to remind ourselves what God has done because he's done the unthinkable. The author of joy entered into our suffering to deliver us from the consequence of that suffering back into the joy of his presence. He has done the unthinkable. We have to remind ourselves of what God has promised, that he is a God who will redeem and restore, that the resurrection of Christ is not just a benefit to Christ and not just a benefit to you as an individual, but a benefit to all of human society. It is the promise of the recreation of a human culture in which, once again, God's glory is the center and his joy is the air we breathe. I think this is why Paul repeats the command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Because we have to be continually reminded. We have to be continually encouraged. We have to be continually challenged to root ourselves once again in the truth so we can move forward in faith and for the joy set before us endure the brokenness of this world until the Savior who's already died and risen again comes back and brings the blessing of that resurrection to the entire created order. It allows us to look not just to God's gifts but to God's character. It refocuses us on a God who loves us even though sometimes he feels far from us. 
And we once again start to experience joy in situations in which joy makes no sense. Because joy is the result of relationship. And that relationship is the result of a God who has drawn near. You guys, I'm going to create some space for you to pray and let God encourage and speak to your heart. I'm going to pray for us. I would normally put reflection questions up on the screen, but this is a brand new building, which means the projector is going to fail. We've got to find the bugs before we can fix them. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into a time of reflection. I'm just going to ask you, man, just be honest with God. Fill your vision with who he is and what he's done. And from that posture, invite him once again to draw near and pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a good and giving God, that you are a God who has not rejected us even though we preemptively rejected you, that you are not proud and refusing us because we refused you. You are humble and you invite us. We made this mess and man, you walked right into the heart of it. You stepped into the storm to absorb the storm. You stepped into our sin to bear the consequence and penalty of our sin that we might be redeemed and restored. Father, the brokenness of this world can be overwhelming. We need your presence. Spirit, we need you to encourage our hearts. Lord, you draw near to the brokenhearted. You don't break what is bent. You restore and heal. I pray for my friends right now, those that are feeling the weight, that are wounded and hurt, are bent and in fear of breaking. Spirit, will you draw near to them? Comfort their hearts. Reawaken them to the delight and the hope of joy. And Lord, when we look at this broken world, we have no choice but to echo the closing words of Scripture. Come soon, Lord Jesus, come soon. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.